Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist. With me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Madeline Gray about her literary novel, Green Dot. Madeline is a writer and highly commended critic from Sydney. She has written for The Times, The Guardian, the BBC, and many other publications. She has a master's in English from the University of Oxford and is studying for a PhD at the University of Manchester. In this episode, we discuss writing the other woman in an affair with empathy. How Madeline's work as a critic gave her an understanding of how novels work and the importance of keeping note of overheard conversations and funny observations. Just a bit of a heads up, some of the sound in this episode is a little bit quiet. Uh, That's because Maddie had just got off a plane from Sydney and we were trying to squeeze in a recording before she had a very busy tour Um, So Maddie was speaking to me from a very busy street in London and um, we were so desperate to have this conversation because um, Maddie's got such an interesting story to tell and Green Dot is a fabulous debut for 2024. But before we hear Maddie talk, let's hear an excerpt from Green Dot. For some years of my 20s, I was very much in love with a man who would not leave his wife. For not one moment of this relationship was I unaware of what every single popular culture representation of such an arrangement portended my fate to be. Having done well in school, but having found little scope in which to win things since then, it is possible that my dedication to this relationship was in fact a dedication to my belief in myself. That I could make a man love me so much that he would leave what he had always known, all his so-called responsibilities, purely to attain my company forever. I offered nothing but myself, you see. I was not rich. I had no assets or important connections. I did not have children or things that tied me to anywhere, really. Whereas he had all of these things, so settled into the couch of his life and just approaching middle age. I craved the stability he seemed to exude. I was intoxicated by the promise of ordinary happiness implied by his cargo shorts, by his chemist-bought sunglasses. I was besotted with the way he combined a high-powered job with the nervous shyness of someone who was bullied in primary school and has since taken on knowing timidity as an endearing personality trait. My God, how I wanted him. And I just knew that if I did enough 
put in enough energy, waited long enough, was understanding enough, kind enough, funny enough, horny enough, accommodating enough, I could have him. And then I could have a life which didn't require me to make decisions anymore. I would just adjust myself to snuggle in with him, into his life couch. No more anxiety about what to do or who to see or how to spend my evenings. I would be his, and that would be enough, and I could rest. Hi Maddie, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, Green Dot. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be talking to you. I just got off a 24-hour plane from Sydney and I'm hurriedly running around London and to talk to you is a treat. So thank you very much. <laughs> Lovely. Can you start by telling us what Green Dot is about? Yeah, so the, the short elevator pitch I've now developed is that it's a doomed love affair from the perspective of the other woman. Um, but a little longer is basically it's about 24-year-old Hera who has a few arts degrees and is pretty unsure of what to do with her life and doesn't like the idea of having a job really but a career. She finds that idea stifling. So she, as she has no money, she does have to get a job uh, and she gets a job as a comment moderator at a news website and essentially, sometimes when you're in very boring spaces, you latch on to anything that might give your life meaning. And Hera finds that in 40-year-old Arthur, who is her work senior. And she begins a kind of all-consuming love affair with him. The only catch is he is unfortunately married. Uh, and then the kind of book develops into a tale of obsession from one woman. And, and we see how far she'll go to try and get the love she wants. Mm. I just got totally addicted to this novel like trying to work out what was going to happen and we we kind of know that it's doomed because of course um Hera tells us basically that she's made this terrible mistake and I love the way you have this voice that speaks to the reader I wondered whether that was something um you decided straight away or did you play with kind of perspective and point of view as you were writing yeah well I knew it had to be from the first person because it's quite a solipsistic novel. It's all from one woman's perspective. And I knew that if we got the insight of other characters, then we might kind of become aware of the amount of cognitive dissonance that Hera is engaging with. And so to really commit to her point of view, which is quite warped at times, you had to just be stuck inside her head. And I didn't know how far I was going to break the fourth wall um, when I began. Uh, but it kind of became quite natural. It's kind of like diaristic and Hera's speaking to you from at a stage in her life where she's no longer in this affair. And so I wanted to ha her to have a kind of wry um, looking back and saying, I'm aware this, this is a point that I should have done something differently. I know that you think this is stupid. I too know it's stupid, but I did it anyway. And it's kind of, I wanted that kind of conversation with the reader to be organic and, and fun and so to develop a, a repartee between protagonist and reader yeah I wondered if you could give us an insight to where this book began and whether I guess what point you knew you had something special gosh um it began because I, I also work as a literary critic um as well as a writer of fiction and I'd been reviewing and reading a lot of affair novels for a long time. I'm not, not trying to suggest that my book is the only affair novel that exists. It is a very old narrative. Um, 
but what I was really interested in in all these books was this trope of the the older man and the younger woman. And I just, I wanted to tease out why a young woman in the 21st century who ostensibly could choose any path, she's educated, um, she lives in a city where like there aren't, you know, huge barriers to a white woman's success, let's be real. Um, so... I wanted to see why she, of all people, would decide to go down this normative path of falling for a boring old white guy. That seems like a really strange decision to make. Um, and I guess I knew that the story is compelling. I think affair novels are always compelling. But what I wanted to make different about it was I don't see that many novels that are from the perspective of the other woman. Usually it's from the perspective of the the woman who's husband is cheating on her or partner and I wanted to yeah just extend empathy and really get into the head of someone we might have a knee-jerk moral reaction to and I mean in answer to your question when did I know I was onto something I I don't really know if I ever knew I was onto something I just I was I was interested in it and I just wrote it myself and I didn't show it to anyone the whole time I was writing it um and then after about a year I thought it's probably I reckon it's done um, so I just sent it to an agent who I'd never met and was like, is this anything? Uh, and luckily she was like, yeah, this is something. So that was helpful. Oh, wow. So your kind of agent experience was literally send it out. And was that an agent then that you got representation from? Yeah, yeah. Grace Hyphen, she's amazing. She's Australian. Um, but at the time I emailed her, she was in London for the London Book Fair. And uh, it was really... Like it, I'm aware that it's a, a wild tale that does not happen to debut novelists, so I get that it's not um not common. So I'm very grateful. But she was like, "I love this. Um, can I just like shop it around at the London Book Fair? I'm here right now." And I was like, uh, "Yes, <laughs> please do that." Um, and then she did that, and then like three days later, um, I had my first book deal, which was with um Whittenfield and Nicholson in the UK. Wow, that is that is fantastic. I mean, perfect timing as well. Did you know? Did you know London Book Fair was going on? Had you any awareness of this? No, not at all. I had no <laughs> idea it was going on. It was totally random and just one of those instances where like things come together in a magical way. But yeah, a stroke of luck, definitely. Amazing. Had you tried to write a novel before? Obviously, you're you're a writer anyway, and I know you've done a master's and a PhD, but. Had you kind of attempted a novel and abandoned it, or was this literally your first ever try? <laughs> I um I'd written like maybe one or two short stories when I was at uni, um but I just kind of felt um earlier on I don't know I felt like to have a novel you probably need to have a story that <laughs> is interesting to other people, and I honestly didn't feel like I had that narrative in my head until until the idea for this book kind of germinated so I hadn't ever tried to write a novel before but I'd spent 10 years criticizing in a you know in a positive way not being negatively criticizing but thinking about other novelists and their books for so long that I think that was like my education in novel writing and then yeah I just just kind of did it. <laughs> I saw an interview with you where you said that your master's and your PhD were, were kind of preparing you for this I wondered whether the novel was almost like a cathartic release, a kind of way of playing with the, the information that you'd learned, but in a way, you know, rather than doing it in an academic way. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, my master's was about um, like, what was the term? It sounds really wanky. It was like erotic neoliberal women's friendships or something like that. Um, but it was looking at like Sally Rooney, Deborah Levy and Ali Smith. And so I've been thinking about, you know, how can women be happy in late capitalism, but in really um, academic terms that I really wouldn't want anyone I like to have to read because it's so dense. Um, and then the PhD was in, um, which I literally just handed in, so I'm like feeling a lot of relief. Um, it was in autobiographical women's literary theory. So again, very dense stuff. Um, but still thinking about, you know, feminism and white feminism and how is kind of white feminism co-opting ideas of, you know, anti-neoliberal struggle and all this kind of stuff. And this novel was a way for me to, yeah, channel all of that information into something that was hopefully readable and fun and compelling and didn't use the word hermeneutics every two sentences. Yeah. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. <laughs> One thing that kind of surprised me in the novel, and I don't know why it surprised me, but um, you touch on the pandemic and like, living through the pandemic and... I think there's a there's a kind of a weird thing where for a long time people were afraid to touch it and afraid to write about it and especially because people were afraid of their book being termed as a pandemic novel um were you were you kind of 
apprehensive to write about it um or had you always always planned to include it Um, well, I mean, obviously I couldn't have planned to include it um, before the pandemic because I am unfortunately not um, someone who can tell the future. But I was wary of putting in the pandemic because I didn't want it to be uh, labelled as a pandemic. In the case of this story, it just seemed to work really well to me because the isolation that one experiences in lockdown is terrible at any point, but especially if you're in... a love affair and you're trapped on the other side of the world from the person that you love and you have no support and no network it just seems like wow this is how it would really maximize all the terrible terrible feelings that are that are happening so it just seemed to work for the story which is a, a boring answer maybe but it worked yeah no no I I totally understand that I wondered um kind of on that on that note of obviously planning um Did you have a kind of general um, sense of what was going to happen in the book? Like, did you have kind of like, this is going to happen, like various events, or are you kind of more of a right to see what's going to happen kind of person? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm definitely more of a right to see what's going to happen. But that being said, I knew how I wanted it to end. So I wrote the final scenes first. Uh, I knew that that's what it had to end. And then it was essentially me working from that and like how would someone get to this point mm. so like a pantser to use that term but in reverse <laughs> I know a lot of people that write at the end first so you're not alone on that one yeah yeah <laughs> um your book is just so funny and just such a wry like you said the wryness of her of her voice um is just fantastic and all these like observations about the world and about life and particularly in such a kind of monotonous job I wondered whether you're the sort of person that kind of collects these little nuggets and writes them down. Are you someone that's always like got notes on your phone with loads of observations on? Absolutely. Yeah. You've pitched me, you've seen me and read me very much there. Um, my notes app is all just like overheard conversations and like funny little nuggets. There's even like when I was doing the edits on the book, I, I'd been at a, I think I was at like, it was a Chinese dumpling noodle house in Sydney. And I overheard these two gay men just having the funniest conversation about like people who, I think it was like people who love Disney. And he was like, I don't love Disney. I grew up with domestic abuse or some line that was just so funny. And I, in the edits, I was like, I'm putting it in. It's going in. So I hope they read the book because I just stole their conversation. <laughs> Can you imagine if they pick up the book and see it and they're like, Wait a minute, uh, that was what I said. <laughs> I should give them, yeah, some some credit, but unfortunately they were strangers. But if they get in contact, be sure to give them royalties <laughs> if they ever come. <laughs> you mentioned earlier, which I thought was really interesting, about um, you wanted to write a book where readers would empathise with the other woman. And I guess there will be people that read it that obviously will dislike her just because she's, slept with a married man and obviously to the extent of where the book goes I don't want to give it away um how do you feel about this whole like kind of empathetic like likable character thing because there are a lot of people that just particularly just are like I don't like this character so I don't like this book how do you feel about kind of writing I suppose unlikable characters I mean I think it's becoming such a trope now um which I don't think is fair the the unlikable messy woman and I think that that 
um, labeling of, of a woman who isn't likable is, is a kind of reductive and pretty sexist way to, to deal with things. But I, I love the idea of writing someone that you don't necessarily like. I think that's the whole, that's the joy of fiction and, and making stuff up that you can inhabit the head of someone that you wouldn't normally try to understand. Um, but it has been funny in terms, I didn't, I don't think I predicted how many major moral reactions there would be to having a protagonist who is, you know, quote unquote, an adulteress. Um, the responses from people, like especially on like forums like Goodreads, where people really um are not shy or not backwards and covering forwards. Um, some people have been like, I would never read sentence by this repugnant character, like, you know, women who cheat are the worst people in the world, etc. And then I'm obviously not contributing to this forum. This is, that would be I'm always waiting for someone to come in and like speak in my defense. And you know, occasionally they do, and they'll be like novels are not for relatability, you know, they're for understanding a character. So if she irks you this much, that's probably probably a good thing. So I, I want to give those comments a thumbs up. But yeah. I just like if, if that's and I feel like that's applied more to, to women because, I mean, no one's saying that about, you know, Camus the outsider, are they? Like, mm. oh, no, he wanted to kill his mum. I can't read it. <laughs> it's insane. No, I I really thought you did an amazing job in making making the reader, me especially, want to put my hands over my face and be like, no, just don't. But also at the same time, <laughs> completely understand why because you built up this you know this attractionist obsession in a way where the reader's just like separate from it and it's a, a car crash waiting to happen but you completely buy into why it also you know why aren't we blaming Arthur for for most of this because he's the one making these promises and and um you know and and le- well for a long time leading her down a path where he's not telling her what's going on in his life so um no I thought you did a great job plus yeah. I am totally I'm totally with you on that. It's fiction I'd rather read about people who are despicable. Not the saying that hair is despicable, but reading about awful people <laughs> is massively enjoyable. So, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I recently read a book, I think it's called A Certain Hunger. It's about a female serial killer. And um, that's wonderful. I mean, do I agree with serial killers? No. But do I want to read about them? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, lots of people that read thrillers and, you know, pe- novels about murderers. So I just think, yeah, I don't really see why you'd take such objection to it. Um. Anyway, I wanted to ask about, um, I guess kind of a boring question, but I think sometimes practical questions are interesting to hear about. But on a practical note, like, how did you get it written? Like, you were working... You were, how did you sit down every day? Did you write every day? Did you get up at 5am and write? What was your kind of process? Sorry, I just had to laugh at the 5am. That's hilarious. Absolutely not to that. Um, so yeah, I was working four days a week at a bookshop as a bookseller. Uh, I was doing my PhD full time. The way that I got this done was because this little thing called COVID happened. Um, there was lockdown and I was living by myself. And there are a lot of hours in the day when, when that's the case. We don't have children or I didn't have children or, or a partner. So I had plenty of time. And essentially, what I would do is when I got from work, I would write for a few hours every night. And then it just just words would just, you know, spill out. And sometimes they were good and sometimes they were terrible. And then 
the next day in the morning before I went to work, I'd read what I'd written. Delete the stuff that was shit. Keep the stuff that I thought had some merit. But it was definitely not like a, you know, Anthony Trollope kind of con- continuously writing finishes one novel, starts another. It was just I would write when I could. Um, and I'm a big fan of the adage, you know, write drunk, edit sober. So there are definitely a few lines involved in the in the writing of this book. <laughs> That's your big tip, is it? Get drunk and then have a go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah have a go. <laughs> yeah. I wondered whether you could just give us a bit of insight or advice about how you feel your your life as a debut novelist has been so um for any writer who's maybe about to go through the process of signing a contract and having their first book published what would your advice be in the in the way to kind of cope with it all I mean well the first thing that I just hadn't foreseen is how long it takes between you signing a contract and the book coming out happening so it was like I think about two years between the period of when I signed and when it came out so then there are two years in which you're still attempting to, I mean, hopefully writing another book, but but life goes on. It's this huge little beautiful thing you have in your soul, but no one else really knows about it. Um, I'd say just enjoy that period because that's a really nice period when you know you've done something and it's going to come to fruition, but, you know, no one's judged it yet. Um, and I think in terms of, the, you know, when the book comes out, I mean, Writers now are much more than it, more than ever assumed to be to have views on everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, people are always looking for sound bites on on everything. And my advice would be, you just don't have to have an opinion on everything. <laughs> Sometimes people ask me questions about, I don't know, things that are like very specific, like political circumstances, and I'm like, I actually, I'm not the expert here. Um, you know, I have my views, but you should speak to someone who knows stuff, I think, because that can be a bit of a minefield. Yeah, so that's that's a good one. You don't always have to say, you don't have to answer everything. Um, and then also just you have to take the bad with the good. So you'll get great reviews, hopefully, and then you'll get some that are really hurtful. <laughs> uh, and you just have to live with that and kind of let it roll over you. Not everything is going to be for everyone. Um and just yeah, take it all with a sense of humor because I mean it's it's wonderful that you that you get to put your work out there and then it's then it's for other people to make judgments and that's okay. Just mm. Let that roll on. You kind of you've alluded to Goodreads and and reading your reviews. Are you do you read all your reviews or have you managed to kind of step away from that now? I think when it when it first was um like up on Goodreads and I hadn't had any reviews at all yet, I would like read each new Goodreads review obsessively um now that it's luckily had a few more and they've been like reviews by papers and stuff i don't really read them unless my publicist emails me and says that it's a good one (laughs) (laughs) then it's safe yeah that i think that's a really healthy way to look at it i i was similar to you when my book came out and but it had no good good reads reviews and then i read every single one and then it got to a point where i read one that was really like you say hurtful um and I was like okay I'm done yeah. no more and that was yeah. it and I haven't got exactly since so I think you, you do reach your point, point of saturation where I sort of feel like you, maybe this is just me but I sort of felt like I know what everyone likes about this book now and I know what everyone hates about it and there's no other opinions that's it that I'm done yeah yeah exactly but then I mean like so 
because I also write freelance journalism and like stuff like that, I have an email address that people can just email um, to do with that kind of work. And now that, not so much with the novel, but I've recently had a few like op-eds published in like The Times and um, The Observer. And that's been so fun because people who will read an article and then like find the email address of the author and email them are a particular kind of person. And I've had some truly wild emails from British people that I've loved, usually older British men. One guy emailed me and he was like, this is a pretentious load of gust. And I just love that he used the word gust. <laughs> so good. Oh my goodness. Yeah, you're right. It's a particular type of person. Um, well, I'm just going to say now, Maddie, ignore all the bad reviews. It's five stars from me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so finally, can you give us maybe a tiny little tease about what might be next for you? What are you working on? Yeah, so... Um, I am in the process now of adapting Green Dot into a television series. Oh, wow. So I am writing the screenplay for that. Yeah, which is very exciting and new for me, new territory, as I've not written the screen before. So I'm kind of Googling how to write screenplay. <laughs> and I'm also in the early stages of a new book, um, which, yeah, I don't want to say too much about because I'm not even that sure, but it's quite different it's a love story that's more about friendship as the main love story um and it's told from a few different perspectives which is really exciting because her is so deeply stuck in her own head it's nice to have a few more investors involved yeah absolutely oh well maddie i'm so thrilled um you're writing something new i'm really excited and the tv show sounds like it could be amazing i'm looking forward to hearing more about that thank you you so much for joining us today Thank you so much. That was Madeline Gray talking about her literary novel, Green Dot, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.